Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the 1979 movie, Monty Python's Life of Brian. To help us extract history from the satirical comedy, we'll be chatting with professor, scholar, and author of Bible and Cinema and Jesus of Hollywood, Adele Reinhardt's. Before we chat with Adele, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, there was resistance against the Roman occupation in Judea. Number two, the portrait of Pontius Pilate from the Gospels is very different than Pilate from other sources. Number three, there were no benefits to the Roman occupation in Judea. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. Maybe it'll be obvious, maybe not. Can you find out which one is a lie? We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right. Now it's time to connect with Adele Reinhardt about the history in Monty Python's Life of Brian. The movie opens with a a spoof on the birth of baby Jesus. Three wise men show up at two o'clock in the morning to worship the baby. Uh, They explain to Mandy, the baby's mother, that they were led there by a star. She's about to shoo them away when one of the wise men says, we must see him. We have presents, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And Manny replies like, oh, well, why didn't you say so? He's right over here. And then we find out the baby's name is Brian. What did you think of that opening sequence in the movie, looking at it from a historical perspective? Well, first of all, it's 100% hilarious. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And it shows us the character of Mandy right away. (laughs) And then, of course, at the end of this scene, they realize, they see the, another another manger lit up, uh, and they realize they've been at the wrong place, and they take their gifts back. So that's kind of funny. From a historical point of view, it's, it's very difficult to assess. This is based on the account in the Gospel of Matthew and the infancy narrative about the Magi coming to visit. And um, we don't know the historicity of that. But the scene itself in, in the movie is really a takeoff on how that scene is presented in Christmas cards, in Christmas pageants, and in other Jesus movies. So you've got the star making its way slowly across the sky. <laughs> and then, um, you know, this atmosphere of uh, reverence with the sacred music, and then you've got Mandy. <laughs> so it really sets up that what the film is going to be about Uh, or or what the film is going to do, which is essentially take some of the building blocks, both of the Gospels, but also of Jesus movies and Jesus and popular culture, and uh, make fun of them. (laughs) Now, one of the overarching themes throughout the movie, of course, is the idea that Brian gets misidentified as, as Jesus. Was that a common thing, misidentification back then? I think that that's really a part of the film's comic um premise and it allows them to be free in how they portray brian 
the film is interesting. The film was, um, they had a hard time getting it released um, commercially. And in the end, I think it was through, through the intervention of George Harrison that finally did get uh, released. And the reason was that people were worried that it was blasphemous or that it portrayed Jesus in a negative light. But if you actually see the film, Jesus is, is portrayed in the brief moments when Jesus is there on the screen, it's completely reverential. The fun is with Brian, and I think that's really why they did it, not so much because misunder misidentification was a common theme, um, but because it allowed them a certain freedom to portray Brian without the constraints that filmmakers face when they try to portray Jesus. That's, that's a good point. I didn't, I didn't think about that. That would free them up a lot. Yep. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus has to be, in the Jesus movies, Jesus has to be presented as this kind of pure, asexual, perfect character, you know, film character, which makes him uninteresting because the characters that we enjoy watching on film are those who change, who make mistakes, who, you know, allow themselves to get emotionally involved and so on and so forth. And so um, uh, the only way really to have fun with this whole theme is by finding somebody else as a, as a stand-in. That makes sense. You, you mentioned um, blasphemy there, and that is something that comes up in the movie as well. Uh, I, I love uh, movies do this all the time with the, you know, the text to set up the the time and place. And I love how, the, how they did that in here, you know, saying it's uh, Judea, 33 AD, Saturday afternoon. About tea time. <laughs> um, and then we see the, the blasphemy. You know, there's um, a man being stoned because he said the name Jehovah. And that leads to a lot of other people being stoned. Is there any historical truth to that sort of punishment for blasphemy in that time? Again, it's hard to know. Uh, you know, historical truth when we're talking about this period is very hard to establish because the sources that are at our disposal certainly don't provide a full picture. Um, according to Leviticus, it's Leviticus 24.16, if anyone wants to look it up, uh, and I'll just quote here, One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. Aliens as well as citizens, when they blaspheme the name, they shall be put to death. So the idea of stoning as a punishment for blasphemy is there in Leviticus in the Bible. However, we don't know whether uh, this was applied to uh, people. There are, uh, I mean, there's a passage in the Gospel of John in chapter 10 that uh, talks about Jews picking up stones to stone Jesus. I mean, they don't in the end. Um, so perhaps, you know, there is some hint that this did take place on occasion. But I think that the main, uh, well, again, you know, well, the, the main the main objective of any Monty Python film is to entertain and to be funny. And that certainly is a hilarious scene, although, you know, of course he does die at the end, the guy who's uh, being stoned for blasphemy. So, but I think it is based on this uh, passage in Leviticus, the idea of it. Speaking of, of punishments, another hilarious one, of course, with, with Monty Python, we're getting a lot of that. Um, it, there's uh, the scene where the uh, Roman soldiers are, are correcting the the Latin grammar <laughs> of the graffiti that, that's going on. It just reminded me of, of days, you know, where, where teachers would 
make a student write the same sentence over and over on a blackboard, you know, and as, as a form of punishment. Uh, do we know if that was also a, a form of punishment that they had? We actually don't know. I mean, <laughs> this scene when um, my kids were did, did studied Latin in high school, the teacher would show this scene played really well in Latin class. It's done primarily for comic effect. Their uh, graffiti was very well known. We have a lot of graffiti from the Roman period. What we don't know is whether people were punished for it. Um, if they, uh, you know, it would be punished, if it was punished at all, it would be under the laws of um, vandalism. And there are probably, one could imagine, although I, you know, um, I don't have the sources here in front of me, that um, painting graffiti on a temple or some other sacred site would be problematic. Whether that would apply to public buildings, as we see in um, in the film, I don't really know. But I think it probably was not a major punishment, and it, it would not have been punished by having you cover the entire purpose. So, um, the main point of the scene, really, it's a it's a spoof on the English public school system, that is their private school system where Latin and other cla- you know, classical languages were taught. And there were very sort of traditional forms of rote learning and of punishment, the writing out of lines. So I think that's the context. And in fact, uh, the stoning scene that we talked about earlier also has elements of that, you know, where people who are disturbing in the front get sent to the back of the, cla- of, of the class of the mob and so on. So there is that thread as well. And I'll just say uh, two things parenthetically. The uh, one of the aspects of Monty Python's genius is really this ability to be humorous on several different levels. So there's the humor involved in the reenactment or, or the ancient setting of, of the um, the scene is just so incongruous with the mode of punishment. You know, writing out lines on the so-called blackboard, um, but then it also refers to the English public school system, which is a major source of some of the class divisions in British uh, society. And so that's part of their genius. The other thing I would say is that um, Roman uh, Italian cities have graffiti all over them. So we're living right now in Rome, and there's neighborhoods in Rome that are entirely covered with graffiti. And the other day we visited Naples, and I don't, it doesn't seem like there's a single surface on any building in Naples that isn't covered with graffiti. It's kind of jarring to the eye. You do get used to it. But I think this is a very ancient and perhaps somewhat respected form of public expression here. And there's so much history that, you know, it kind of makes sense that over time it would happen. I mean, I know it happens here in, in the U.S., <laughs> To see it, I think, in North America as more anomalous, you know, that there's graffiti and it's a violation of public space and it might not be punished in any way, but uh, there are often efforts to remove it. But here in Italy, you don't really see that. You don't see the efforts to remove it. It's just there. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app 
verify your paycheck and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How do you, well, do you think the movie did just portraying Romans occupying Judea. It doesn't really give a lot of explanation as to why we're just kind of thrown into that. Can you fill in some more historical context around that? Yeah. Well, one that the um, Judea came under Roman occupation, I think in the uh, first century before the common era. And um, it continued <laughs> for some centuries after that, with, punctuated by, by revolts. So in that sense, um, you know, so during the time of Jesus, we know that uh, Judea was under Roman occupation, under the leadership of a, a governor, uh, in this case, uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And, um, you know, there are, there are descriptions of this in Jewish sources and in the writings of Josephus. But again, here, I think that the um, primary inspiration for how the film depicts this is other Jesus movies. So you have movies like uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told from the mid-60s uh, and um, the King, um, King of Kings, also the epic from the mid-60s, and other films that, um, and films like uh, Ben-Hur, you know, that, that portray this in a particular way. And um, I think the uh, Monty Python film, Life of Brian, takes its cues from that portrayal. Okay. So yeah. And that makes sense that they would spoof a lot of the movies that people expect to see, you know, the, those visuals, those visuals are, are kind of what expecting. I to see the visuals. And so in some cases, I'm not sure in this case, whether uh, life of Brian is spoofing that portrayal It's taking over that portrayal. Although all those scenes of them chasing each other around, you know, the world is chasing the, the uh, Jewish rebels around, and vice versa, you know, in the depths of the of the um, palace, um, you know, there's certainly humor, uh, humor in that. In the life of Brian, we do see him joining a group called the People's Front of Judea. They're trying to fight back against the Romans. Was there actually resistance against the Roman occupation? Yes, there was resistance against the Roman occupation. And uh, we know about this from the writings of Josephus, uh, who was a first century Jewish historian, wrote um, a set of uh, books uh, called uh, The Jewish War, 
which talked about the lead up to the first revolt against Rome, which took place between 66 and 73. And he also also wrote a, wrote a set of um, treatises called the Jewish Antiquities, where he, and in the later books of that, he also talks about the various uh, social movements that led to the revolt. So he refers there to a group called the Sicarii. This was a Jewish group of really rebels against Rome, kind of guerrilla fighters. We, uh, we might uh, see them as, or from a Roman perspective, they would have been terrorists. And the term Sicarii refers to this kind of very sharp knife that they carried in their robes. You know, as far as we know, and we see this in the film, and uh, we have um, kind of statuary evidence of this as well, the dress was robes with lots of folds and things like that, and there would be pockets and so on, easy to hide things. And so uh, Josephus talks about these rebels as um, hiding their knives in their robes and then, you know, stabbing people sort of randomly. And so they were among those who spearheaded the revolt against Rome. So it sounds like there was more organization to it than, well, than the people's front uh, that we see in the in the film, uh, perhaps, but more than just, you know, um, randomness. It sounds like there was some organization to it. Yes, there were groups. There were definitely groups. And there may have been more than what Josephus tells us about as well. There was a matter of controversy among the different groups that we know about or that Josephus tells us about from this period, the first, the first century. Uh, there was um, controversy around whether it was a good idea to revolt against Rome or not. I mean, Rome was this mega power. Uh, Judea, you know, was a tiny sliver of, of land uh, occupied, you know, populated by people who didn't have armies and legions and, and so on. So how could they actually revolt against this big power? And there was, you know, quite a lot of controversy as to whether this was a good idea or not. I mean, in, in the end people did revolt. I'm sure there were those who disagreed with that. And um, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, the revolt began around 66, but it wasn't fully quashed until 73. That's a long time. Um, so that's kind of interesting. In the course of that, the, the, the um, Herod's temple was destroyed. So this is the destruction of the temple. That's a real watershed point in, um, in Jewish history, the way that Jewish history is talked about is the destruction of the um, of the second temple, um, so that happened in approximately seventy. So you said it started in the year sixty six. So it would have happened at least at the timeline of the movie. It would have happened after all of that. Yes, it would have happened after. Yeah, but we still, I think, we can speculate that even during the time of Jesus, which was about three or four decades earlier than that. Um, there was unrest. I think there's no question that there was a certain amount of unrest and there might have been organized kind of attempts at um, resisting or at, um, at revolting. In a way, um, we might see the passion story as uh, some evidence of that as well, um, where the uh, uh, other person, I mean, Barabbas, who was, ended up being released, is described as a kind of a, a robber but the term in Greek that is used there refers more to what we might call a, a brigand, you know, somebody that is kind of engaged in, let's say, terrorist activities against the ruling power. And so that gives us a bit of a hint that perhaps um, there were resistance movements already at the time of Jesus. We don't know yeah, exactly. We do see that 
sort of <laughs> happened in the movie with the releasing of the prisoner. Um, in the scene in the movie, of course, they, you know, they turn it into a joke and um, go through a list of names. You know, there's Roger, Roderick, all of these are not actual prisoners. They're just trying to get uh, pilots to say ours. <laughs> um, but but it sounds like it, it would have been something that actually happened that he would have uh, asked the crowd to release a prisoner. Well, it says so in the Gospels, in the Gospel versions of the Passion story, in all four versions, I believe, Pilate does ask the crowd whether they want, uh, he, he, he says, you know, it's the custom at Passover to release a prisoner. Do you want Jesus to be released or do you want Barabbas to be released? And the crowd chooses Barabbas. So that's a poignant moment. And in fact, I think the Brian uh, movie captures it very beautifully because in the end, they want to release Brian, but everybody's claiming to be Brian. The real Brian is being released. You just go, I really like this guy. Why couldn't he have gotten off, uh, you know, gotten off the hook on, on this one? But we don't know, as far as I know, there's no historical evidence outside of the Gospels for that practice. So we don't know whether this was an invention of the gospel tradition. It's there in all four of them. So it's not an invention of any of the individual writers, but it is, you know, we, we don't really know. Um, to my knowledge, we don't have any external corroboration for that practice. The impression I would, I would get from that would be almost appeasing the crowds, which would kind of go back to there, there are some uprisings or, you know, unhappiness going on why else would you ask the crowd what prisoner they want to release no that's right and in in the gospel of matthew it's very clear that Pilate was worried about a riot you know again you know there are different versions of this story and i tend to be a historical skeptic so i don't really i hesitate to ascribe historicity based on the gospel stories alone but one can imagine it and so in that context it, one could also imagine that in order to appease the crowd or to keep a riot from happening, that he would offer uh, the release of a prisoner. But again, we don't know whether that was um, historical. The portrait that we get of Pontius Pilate in the Gospels is very different from what we learn about Pilate from other sources. In the Gospels, it seems like he's really concerned to avoid trouble and um, he actually is sort of worried about condemning an innocent man. And he, he feels that he's been, his arm has been twisted into ordering his execution. But in other sources, he, it, he comes across as ruthless. It's really, um, you know, it, it's hard to make these two pictures mesh with each other. In other sources, he doesn't hesitate to do any of this sort of thing. And so we don't know how much of this portrait was sort of massaged by uh, the tradition, um, you know, by um, the followers of Jesus who ended up writing down these stories. If we go back to the movie, there's another funny sequence. They're all funny sequences. So, <laughs> but um, this is when we see Brian starting to get his followers, and the way the movie portrays this, you know, he just there's Roman soldiers trying to find him, and so he's just coming up with random sayings, and people start following him. They start worshiping the gourd that he just happened to have, or his shoe falls off and they believe, oh, it's a sign. We must do the same. Uh, <laughs> of course, the impression I got was it 
super easy to get people to believe whatever it is you're saying. I think there's outside of Brian, we, in the movie we see there's, there are other people there that are also just saying things and have their own little followers. Is there anything to suggest that uh, Jesus got followers as quickly as we see Brian doing in the movie? It's really hard to say. I mean, the gospel stories portray him, portray Jesus as wandering around in the Galilee for the most part, or in the gospel of John, he goes back and forth between the Galilee and Jerusalem. And he does miracles and he makes speeches. And at each point, the gospels refer to the crowds that believed in him or the crowds that followed him. So again, we don't, we don't know whether that's, you know, it's all written down after the fact. So we don't know how quickly this would have happened. Was it within the space of a few days, which is what it seems like in the, in the film, or did this take place over a period of months, or are the gospel writers exaggerating the impact um, that he had? So it's very hard to know. But again, these scenes, like especially the scene in the movie where Brian I guess he falls out a window, right? He's escaping, he's trying to escape from the Romans and he falls out a window and he ends up standing on this kind of a stage or a platform along with a bunch of other people. And everybody's making a speech and everybody, you know, pontificating and he just stands there and says this nonsense and the crowds gather. So again, there's a twofold sort of comic element to that. On the one hand, it does reflect what we know from Roman sources as to how people uh, disseminated their beliefs and how people disseminated the things that they wrote. They stood in a public place, usually in a market, often on a platform like that, maybe not quite so crowded together. And they would read their stuff out or they would proclaim their stuff. And as people walk by, they would stop and listen, kind of like buskers today, right? You have a busker in the subway station or a busker out in a, here in Italy in a piazza. And people walk by and they stop and listen and maybe they stay for a long time and maybe they just uh, walk on by. So this is, from what we know about um, ancient uh, Rome, this was taking place through the Roman Empire as well. But it also takes place in London in Hyde Park. If you ever go to Hyde Park, you'll see that same thing. The people stand on their soapboxes and proclaim their their um, ideas or their writings. And so you have that double-edged kind of contemporary and ancient reference point. I guess I'd never heard of that, just like saying their own beliefs. I, I know I've heard stories of, you know, like reading newspapers or telling the news and, and things like that, you know, town criers and that sort of, sort of thing. It's a similar concept. Right. It's a similar concept. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about, um, town criers as more, I suppose, the medieval period that we think about with that. But these are all a kind of societies with low levels of literacy, societies where people didn't really absorb their information by reading it. And so you would have, uh, let's say somebody wrote a, a treatise or a book. Well, how would they get their work known? We don't have printing presses. We don't have easy ways, you know, agents and publishers and so on that get our, you know, get our work out there. Um, and they would stand in the marketplace and read out their materials. And that's how work kind of got, you know, published. Or they would have reading circles where somebody who could read, you know, would read stuff out loud. So that's how ideas got um, circulated. I think that's probably how the Gospels themselves 
originally circulated as well in some sort of oral kind of public proclamation type. Something that we see in the movie is uh, when the Jews want to be separate from the Samaritans when they're crucified, like separating them there at the end. Were there really separations like that? Yeah, I don't know about on the crucifixion field how how that would have worked. But yes, there is a lot of evidence for um, tensions between Jews and Samaritans. So Samaritans are a different group. They're not Jewish, they're Samaritan. But it's likely that they originated from some uh, similar milieu as did the ancient Israelites. So they have the Samaritan Bible, which is similar to the Bible that we know, Hebrew Bible or Jewish scriptures, Old Testament, how, you know, whatever, however we refer to it, but not identical. And they maintain certain practices, for example, sacrifices of Passover and so on. But the ancient sources do uh, agree that there were social divisions between Jews and Christians. You probably wouldn't have marriage, be, uh, Jews and Samaritans, sorry. You wouldn't have marriage, to my knowledge, uh, between Jews and Samaritans. The Gospel of John refers to, um, says it's very strange that Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink of water because Jews and Samaritans wouldn't share drinking vessels. The um, treatises of uh, Josephus also refer to tensions uh, between Jews and Samaritans. So uh, the movie um, is accurate in at least signaling that tension, the way it signaled is really, again, a spoof on the British class system. Even in crucifixion, you wouldn't want to be beside somebody who wasn't of your social status. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I could see how it'd be, um, they're being crucified at that point. That would be up to the Romans, and I have a feeling that they wouldn't have much choice. No, they wouldn't have much choice. No, one doesn't imagine so. <laughs> Well, speaking of being crucified, at the end of the movie, we see there's like 140 people that are being crucified at the same time. Were there such large numbers crucified like that at the same time? As as we know, yes. There were mass crucifixions. Uh, the one that seems to be uh, the most famous took place during uh, the Spartacus revolt, the revolt um, instigated by Spartacus in 71 before the Common Era, slave revolt where, according to sources, it says that 6,000 people were crucified at once. And whether that's historical, it's hard to say. But there are other references as well to mass crucifixions of three, four, five hundred 500 people or more at a time. And um, the Gospels also give us this indication that other people were crucified at the same time. It refers to the people on either side of Jesus, but um, it's quite likely that there was a large group that was crucified at that time. It was very common. I mean, this the Romans did this kind of, um, they didn't need much. To, uh, it was a, way, a good way of uh, solving problems if your problems were caused by other people. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And that, that, I guess that goes back to if, it's, if crucifixion is that common, then um, that's only going to make people want to revolt even more. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a, an example of the kind of oppression that Rome was capable of exerting on people. I, I know it, it, the Gospels obviously are focusing on um, that particular area, but Rome owned a lot a lot of land. Did they do that pretty universally across their entire empire? As far as I know, they did. Yeah, I mean, the, the Roman Empire was vast. 
you know, we had Roman, um, I mean, it extended up to Great Britain. Um, well, and further east from Rome and, you know, it was, it was huge. It was absolutely huge. Whether it was, this was done everywhere or uniformly, I don't know, but, um, it's likely that it wasn't only in Judea. I mean, we know that it wasn't only in Judea that this was done. What's something about the movie that it got right about history that probably surprised people? So there's one uh, particular moment where the um, the cell of the uh, popular what is it popular front people's front of Judea yeah yeah to Judea yeah uh, <laughs> you know these six or seven people so there's one really hilarious scene what have the Romans ever done for us <laughs> and this is when uh, the leader of this group is trying to foment their um, rebellious uh, nature against, uh, you know, foment rebellion against Rome. They've let us wipe the bastards. They've taken everything we had, and not just from us, from our fathers and from our father's fathers, and then others go on from our father's 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 fathers. And and then he asks, uh, Reg asks, and what have they ever given us in return? And then it turns out they all pipe up. There's a long list of benefits that... Uh, the Romans bestowed on Judea the aqueduct, sanitation, roads, irrigation, medicine, education, wine, public baths, public safety. And then finally, the uh, leader says, all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, the education, and so on, what have the Romans ever done for us? And one person says, brought peace? And Rich says, oh, shut up. <laughs> so this is funny it's very very funny but actually as far as i know it's based on a passage in the babylonian talmud now i should say i don't know that they read that passage in the babylonian talmud all i will say for sure is that there is a similar passage in the babylonian talmud which is the babylonian babylonian talmud is a sixth century massive compilation of um, legal sources stories all kinds of material. And there in the tractate called Shabbat or Sabbath, there's this exchange between a number of rabbis. And one of the rabbis says, how pleasant are the actions of this nation, the Romans. They established marketplaces, they built bridges, they established bathhouses, and then, you know, other things. So what's surprising about it is that idea of um, appreciation, the idea that Roman occupation didn't bring only high taxation and misery, which I, I think it probably did, surely did, but also certain benefits. Uh, they, the Romans were quite advanced in terms of some of their uh, public sanitation, their, their understanding of hygiene and of sanitation. And you, you can see that in um, archaeological remains in Judea, by the way, as well as in Rome and uh, Pompeii and other, other sites, um, it, Roman sites in Italy, where they had, for example, bathhouses that would have a cold room, a tepid room, and a hot, like, hot steam bathroom with the piping going underneath and ways of draining the water out and all these different things. 
when I first encountered this in the film, you know, I was surprised then to realize the, um, that there are ancient sources as well that corroborate that. On the whole, in my view, The Life of Brian is probably the best researched of the movies that base themselves on the life of Jesus. And uh, although a lot, you know, it is a spoof and it's a brilliant comedy, but it gets more things right than most other films do. So um, I respect it for that. And the amount of research that went into it. Um, a few years ago, there was a conference in London, University College London, on the life of Brian and history that brought a whole bunch of people together, myself included, to talk about the historical aspects of the life of Brian. And we were really um, privileged to have John Cleese with us for the whole time, as well as um, the editor, the, the person who had edited the film, and a couple of other people who had been involved were there part of the time. And what we learned from them was really the amount of research that went into this. They really studied. They studied scholarship. They went back to the primary sources. And they incorporated the things that suited their purpose. Um, and so, uh, and I think what, one of the reasons that they um, did this, well, first of all, they were just really interested. And this is what... Um, you know, John Cleese really emphasized that he just found it fascinating. And so he was studying this out of his fascination. But also because they were trying to make a Christian film. And so they were less constrained. Um, as we talked about earlier, they were less constrained by what they themselves might have learned in Sunday school as as children or what it is that might appeal to um, somebody who's coming at this from the perspective of Christian piety. And so they just went back to the historical sources and, um, and uh, made use of them, I think, to good effect. Yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating that uh, I, I guess I wouldn't have expected Life of Brian to be one of the most <laughs> well-researched I mean, and just by naming him Brian, you know, you know that. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I think this is part of the brilliance of the film, that it takes some of the historical materials, but then also, uh, you know, it's referencing other Jesus movies. It's referencing the, um, the uh, Christmas uh, industry. It's referencing aspects of British education and British society. And it weaves all that together. And that's, that's really why it's just so hilarious. And it's fun to watch. I've, I don't even know how many times I've watched it. It's fun every single time. Oh, it, it was a blast. It had been a little bit since I've seen it, but you know, preparing for this, uh, it, there's a lot of little things in there that, the, the, like the little details, you know, because you, you do see um, Jesus here every so often, you know, in, in there, like at the very beginning, you know, as, as he's, you know, preaching, little things like that, that they, that, I had completely forgotten we're in there. You watch it again, like, ah, the, little, the little details in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But thank you so much for coming on to chat about Life of Brian. I know you've written extensively about Jesus in film. So for someone listening to this who wants to learn more, uh, which of your books would you recommend they start with to start digging deeper beyond the movie? Well, I've written a book on the Jesus movies that's called Jesus of Hollywood. 
Uh, that's published by Oxford, and you can get it from their website and uh, Amazon, of course. Uh, uh, that came out about 15 years ago now. Um, more recently, I've published an introduction to Bible and film that um, has a chapter on the Jesus movies, but chapters on other kinds of movies as well, as well as on the use of the Bible in um, just regular fictional feature films, not in Bible movies as such, but the ways in which the Bible is used in other kinds of, uh, in other kinds of movies. Um, that's called Bible and Cinema, an Introduction. The second edition just came out at the end of March. Uh, that's published by Rutledge. Um, I've done other things on Bible and film, but those are the two that have the most um, information about the Jesus movies. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, add links to those in the show notes for this episode. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Adele Reinhardt once again for sharing her expertise about the history behind Mighty Python's Life of Brian. If you want to hear more about the true story, I'd recommend picking up the two books that Adele mentioned at the end there, Jesus of Hollywood and Bible and Cinema, an introduction. As always, you can find links to those books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a light game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, there was resistance against the Roman occupation in Judea. Number two, the portrait of Pontius Pilate from the Gospels is very different than Pilate from other sources. Number three, there were no benefits to the Roman occupation in Judea. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's go in a completely random order and start with number two, right in the middle. The portrait of Pontius Pilate from the Gospels is very different than Pilate from other sources. That is true. As Adele pointed out, the Pilate that we can read about in the Gospels is very much trying to avoid trouble, while in other sources, he's a lot more ruthless. That brings us to number three. There were no benefits to the Roman occupation in Judea. That's the lie. Adele told us about an exchange in the Talmud that very closely parallels to the benefits that are actually mentioned in the movie, such as markets, bridges, bathhouses, and so on. That means number one is also true. There was resistance against the Roman occupation in Judea. Even though there were benefits, that doesn't mean everyone liked the Roman occupation, Adele explained that one of the things the movie got right was the fact that there was resistance against Roman occupation. She mentioned how Josephus wrote about that. Granted, it wasn't the same kind of resistance from the people's front of Judea like we see in the movie, but the idea of there being resistance is true. <laughs> Last but not least, it's time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you'll know that I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to. After all, a huge majority of podcasts are like mine, completely free to listen to. But that does not mean that they are free to create. Quite the opposite. Even though podcasts don't always cost a lot of money, they almost always cost a lot of time. 
the time that it takes to learn the technical side, to research each episode, to record them, to edit them, and so on. But I only have the stats for my own show. So with that in mind, today's episode took me 26 hours to create. To make it clear, that is only my time. It doesn't include any of Adele's time. And to be even more specific, it doesn't even include all my time because that 26 hours is only the time that it took for me to produce this one episode. It doesn't include all the time I spend building and maintaining the Based on a True Story website, finding guests, scheduling, logistics, social media, and so on. All those things don't have anything to do with making today's episode, but are still required to make the podcast overall. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider supporting the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, you can learn how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And don't forget, if you want to chat about today's episode, you can do that over in the Based on a True Story Facebook group. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.